All right, here's what I need. Here's what I need. I need a volunteer, um, but this volunteer needs to have experienced something specific, right? I, I need a volunteer who has broken a bone, whose bone has protruded out of your skin and has caused kind of a bloody fleshly mess, all right? So I need a person that has experienced, a, I believe it's called a compound fracture. You've got one? All right, come on up, brother. Come on up. Give it up, give it up for my brother. Come on. I'm the hot man. Let's go. Let's go, bro. Let's go. All right. So, uh, so tell me your name. Dave. Dave. And so, tell us about what what bone broke. Um, it was my thumb. Your thumb. I was hoping for a little bit of a larger limb. Well, that's what happened. Okay. So, like so, so, so okay. So keep going. So, what happened to your thumb? All right. I was working on my car with an amateur. Okay. And you're the amateur, or someone else? I am a seasoned professional. Okay. <laughs> my amateur friend dropped. So the you're jack. judging. You're judging that yes, person. Yes, okay. I am. All right. They dropped the jack while my thumb was underneath the jack stand in the car, and the car's frame. Right on your thumb. Yeah. So, just so we're getting this straight, the car drops on your thumb. This is right. Okay. Um, so, what happens? Like, what, what's the, what, what happens? Like, what does your thumb look like at that point? Um, like, this part was just kind of hanging off after mm-hmm. the nail just popped off. So, your nail completely gone. So, the bone was going this way. So, you were looking like, at your bone. Yes. Okay. And the, and the bottom of your thumb's like dangling, like yes. a noodle. Okay. Okay. So let me ask this. Thank you for sharing this. Yeah. I feel like I know you so much better now. Um, was there at any point in this whole thing, like as the car drops, as you, was there any point that you were like, this is awesome? Did that ever happen in this? No, not really. No, not, of course not. not. Much later. No, of course no, not. It's a good story. It is a great story. And thank you for sharing it. Give it up for my brother. It's awesome. It's awesome. Now... For the rest of you guys, like when you've broken a bone, it's normally not uh, like a, a celebratory thing, you know? Like you're normally like, awesome, I can see my bone sticking out of my arm, like this is the best thing ever. Uh, the same thing happens when you do the drop of death with the iPhone, right? Come on. Like you're, you know, all of a sudden you're talking and, and it, you lose grip of it, right? And it lands face down. And you just kind of look at it for a second, you know? And some of you in your pleading, like, seek the Lord, you know, like, God, I just broke it last week. Like, please, for the love, you know, right? Because it's face down, so you're waiting, right? And some of you have experienced this once. My wife, a couple times, um, you flip it over, and, and there it is, the crack of all goodness, you know. And, and, like, there's never a point where I'm with someone when they break their, their iPhone uh, glass case that they're really pumped about it. I mean, they're rarely high-fiving. This isn't something to celebrate, you know. Uh, I, I, I would say, in general, uh, when we start talking about breaking things, it doesn't typically cause reason for uh, excitement. Uh, some of you who are Xbox players, whenever you got the red ring of death, you guys remember that? Right? I've never met a Halo player that got the red ring of death that was like, yes, thank you, Lord. Like, I was waiting for this. No, like, like in general, in our culture, uh, things that are broken aren't attributed to things that are good. Brokenness, uh, I, I think we believe, is, is bad. Right? And, and so, like, I mean, think about it. Oftentimes, breaking up, you know, if you break a glass in a restaurant and on and on and on, in general, brokenness isn't a good thing. The problem, then, is when you see passages like this in Psalm 34. This is what causes some contention. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So you see a passage like that, and you're like, hold on a second. Like, just about everything 
in our culture that breaks down or that breaks, it's attributed as something that's negative or bad. And now the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. What's the implications? What does that mean? Like, how, how am I supposed to address that in my life? It's counterintuitive. Okay, then in Isaiah 66, beautiful text, check this out. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things, he says, my hand is made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, not because of man, but because of me. But this is the one to whom I will look. Check this out. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So somehow to the Lord, humility and brokenness, though in some senses they're different, in other senses they're certainly married, uh, brokenness is a beautiful thing. It's why the Pharisees struggled so much. When Jesus comes on the scene, he leaves the confines of heaven and he comes to this earth. The Pharisees were struggling to believe that he was the son of the man because they were expecting not a humble king. They wanted a militant leader that would come down with grenade launchers on both of his shoulders and start wiping out the wretched Romans. That's what they thought was coming. The savior that would be a militant politician. And instead the Christ came and washed his disciples' feet. And so tonight, listen, in a so much fun journey, I want to ask this question that will certainly drive the rest of our night. Is brokenness bad? So I pray often that we would together break. And I think just in saying that, I think many of you have in your mind a posture of sadness when we start talking about humility and brokenness. And I want to contend to you right now, you need to get rid of that mindset. Brokenness and the posture of sadness, though at times can align themselves, brokenness isn't driven by that. It's driven by something else. And tonight, that's my prayer. My prayer is that we break together. My prayer is that brokenness, like, hits this room in a way differently than what you expect. Uh, I have to admit that in my younger years, I believed that I could contrive that, that I could like make that happen with the right lighting, the right sound, the right song, the right ambiance, the right phrasing, that somehow like I could help the process of people being broken. But now I fully believe as my years have progressed, it is fully God's work. So I'm going to pray again that he would break us. And I want you to join me in that prayer. We're going to journey through the text and see what happens tonight. Are you guys with me? Let's pray. God, right now, for your name and your glory, I pray that you would break us, humble us. I pray that you would cause us to bend the knee in awe of who you are. So create that desperate need and image in our hearts tonight, Lord. We pray that tonight, believing you're going to answer. Amen. So open your Bibles or turn in your uh, whatever device to Philippians chapter 2. We're studying the letter to the church in Philippi all summer long. We've been in it a few weeks. Uh, tonight we'll study chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. Again, for most of you who are, some of you guys are just around for the summer, you'll get to go through most of Philippians with us, and for the rest of you, you'll get to see it through, but... So a great, awesome text, uh, to live as Christ, to die as gain for to me, Paul wrote last week. And tonight, let's begin here 
in verse number one of Philippians chapter two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now this is like a a kind of rhetorical statement. It sounds like a question, but in reality what he's saying, because or if in Christ you've experienced these things. But the assumption is, if you're genuinely in Christ, if you have real relationship with Jesus, then guess what? You've been encouraged by Christ before. That's certainly my story, and for anyone who's in Christ, like there have been places where, where you have desperately needed to hear from him, to hear his word, to experience the depth of his grace and his mercy, and you have been supremely encouraged, way more than pleasantries through a text message from a friend or a nice Facebook post that puts some quote from some person you've never heard of before. Like, the encouragement that comes from Christ is eternal. Like, it doesn't break down. It, it reaches to the depths of our heart. So he's saying, look, if you've ever experienced that before, if you've ever encountered encouragement with Christ, and if you've ever had any comfort from his love, Now, because we have Jesus and later the Spirit, the thoughts from many scholars would be that this would be the love from God. But isn't it true that the love that comes from the Lord is so much more rich than a friend that says, I love you? I mean, come on, when you need to be consoled, when you need to be comforted, I mean, you could have 16 of your BFFs all around you and they're lavishing love and care. I mean, they even brought flowers, right? And they're, they're playing songs through their phones. And like, everything seems right. It seems like all of this would lead to supreme comfort. But you know, when through the character of God, through His Word, when all of a sudden He is the God of all comfort, like Scripture says to you, you know that it way supersedes any comfort that comes from man. And I mean, it can be some of the richest stuff. I mean, listen, my wife is a very comforting person. There's certainly been days and weeks and months where I've desperately needed her comfort, but her comfort pales in comparison to the comfort that comes from God. So he's saying, look, if you've ever experienced this, hang on. Also, if you've ever encountered the participation in the Spirit. Well, again, if you're a believer, let me tell you the grace that God's given. He's gifted you with the Spirit inside of you. So first, by nature, because God resides in you through the Spirit, you have participation with the Spirit. Now, how, how does that work? Because some of you are, like, get freaked out by the Spirit, right? You picture like tambourines and dancing girls, and you're like, you, you don't know what to think, right? Like, like what's the Holy Spirit? How, how does this work? I have some baggage. Like, I think it's just speaking in tongues or all the gifts. Listen, listen, listen. The Holy Spirit is celebrated here because the Holy Spirit is a piece of the Trinity, the, the Godhead. It's God the Father, it's God the Son, it's God the Spirit, all three God. Now, write a triangle or do something to help yourself understand that, but it's beautiful, all right? Now, participation in the Spirit comes in many forms. It, it comes from conviction of sin, where all of a sudden you walk uh, in, into a party, and it's a little bit different than you thought it was going to be. And you can, as a believer, instantly sense the light and the darkness in the room. I say all the time when we go to Ecuador and there are certain villages that we'll travel to and I'll walk in like the setting there. And because of the shamans and the darkness that, uh, that, that is there, like you can instantly feel that. Well, well, how? I don't feel that because of my humanness. I feel that because of the spirit inside of me. The spirit we also participate with in discernment. 
or we're pleading and praying for God to send us in a direction and all of a sudden God gives revelation on inspiration through his spirit. So Paul says, look, if you've ever been encouraged by Christ and if you've ever had any comfort from his love and if you've ever participated in the spirit as if to say, if you're in Christ, of course all these things happen. And then he says, if you've ever had any affection and sympathy. Now how many of you guys consider yourself uh, like needers of affection? How many of you like... Like, your, one of your love languages is physical touch, okay? You need a lot of affection, all right? Okay? Some of you guys are, like, holding hands and you're, like, raising them up, you know? <laughs> Prove it right here, all right? Now, it seems weird to talk about it in this way because most of us, when we start talking about, like, affection coming from God, it, like, makes Jesus, like, a boyfriend figure, right? And so it's like, well, hold on a second. Like, how, how, can, how can we sense and feel affection, so a couple weeks ago, and I, I've experienced this before, and I've told the body about it. Uh, as I was getting ready to preach here, um, I was experiencing all kinds of doubt. I was hearing, like, tremendous lies in my head. You're an idiot. Don't go out there. Like, you're not worthy or called to do this. You need just to sit back in your seat and on and on and on. And let me tell you what the affection of the Lord looks like is amidst the lies and the chaos, and and honestly, even at that point, like, doubt on whether or not I should even come out here. Um, The Lord swooped in and reminded me of my identity in him. The Lord swooped in and canceled the lies with truth. The Lord swooped in and, as only he can, reminded me that my worth isn't found in myself, and certainly I can't embrace the lies of the enemy, that my worth is found in him. That is his affection. Do I deserve that? No. I don't deserve his affection. I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve participation with the Spirit. Neither do you. But God has been gracious in these things. So Paul's setting the table to say something else. Look, if you've ever experienced these things, this is a good litmus test for if you're in Christ. Because only believers are encouraged by Jesus. Only believers experience affection from Christ. Only believers have participation with the Spirit. And if these things are true, then he says this in verse 2. If these things have happened, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. He's writing to the church in Philippi. So what he's escalating is unity. Why? Because the church in Philippi was being infiltrated by bad teaching and doctrine. So he's saying, like, look, if you've participated and and encountered and experienced the reality of Christ, then embrace oneness with each other. Now, let's show how difficult this is. Okay? A marriage, let's say. Any married folks here? Okay? Married married folks? All right. Two? Um, (laughs) It's good to have you here. So my wife and I, listen, there are seasons that, that Heidi and I go through where, I mean, we are in one accord. I mean, she, she like, I finish her sentences. Sounds like a Hallmark card. Like, I, you know, like, we, we're sharing, and, and you, like, we want the same things for dinner on the same nights, you know? Like, what is it tonight? And I'm like, I don't know, like, tombstone pizza, right? She's like, yes, praise the Lord, you know? She never says that. Um, <laughs> if only, if only. Right, like there, there's, certain, there's certain periods and seasons where we're in one accord. But there's other seasons when we're not. There's other seasons when like it's a battle. 
when I feel like our family should go this way, and she's like, I, I don't think so. Like, that's not what the Lord is telling me. Or, uh, I, you know, I think we should implement this thing in our family rhythm. And where I, I, buck, uh, I buck her on that, like, and on and on. Like, there's times where we're in disunity. So some of you who have uh, dated in, in terms of, uh, let me say it this way. Some of you who have dated when both people are very interested in the glory of Christ, because that's the only way this analogy works, you know this. Okay, You're like there, there's times when your dating relationship is awesome and there's times where it's not so awesome. So if two people struggle being in the same mind, being in one accord, like do you understand then the implications of the church? Think about how many stories, perspectives, challenges, sin, struggles, gifts are represented by every believer in this room right now. It's absurd. It's crazy. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It hasn't been celebrated, many, uh, maybe by you. What we often celebrate is tribe. Tribe loyalty. Like, hey, this is our crew. This is the body. You know, if we step too far outside of this, if we have to interact with those, you know, denominational folks down the street, or if somehow we have to interact with an with a expression that looks way different than ours, or if we have to go to Ecuador and, you know, we can't even hear their language, and on and on, we start getting confused about what the body of Christ is. It's called the body of Christ because it's one body. And it's beautiful, and this is what Paul is saying, you desperately need this. Unity in the body of Christ is one of the key, listen, key components in evangelism. That's why I know the enemy absolutely loves when the church divides on the wrong battles and the wrong war. Like the enemy's just over there. You guys keep fighting about silly things, Christians. Like, go at it. Keep fighting about non-gospel-related issues. Keep arguing about the dinosaurs. Keep arguing about carpet coloring your church buildings. Keep arguing about denominational names. And on and on and on. When the call is, is that we would celebrate in the thing that we have in common, and that is Christ. Now, how does that work and function? Paul tells us, verse 3, he throws the hammer. Check this out. Oh, dear heavens. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I feel like it should say, like, do nothing for five minutes, right? From selfish ambition. Like, are you serious? Do nothing from selfish ambition? And conceit is basically like the fullness of all pride. He says, get rid of anything that is self-centric. And instead, what he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, let's give tonight as a little bit of an example. Uh, was it raining when you guys got here? Okay. Uh, so you pull in the parking lot, and you're like, all right. So, man, it's raining. Like, Lord knows I worked like an hour on this bun back here, you know. Like, I can't, if that rainwater hits that, like, it's going to be a travesty, and I was hoping to see so-and-so tonight, and I don't know. So, hey, li listen, let's, let's pull in. Um, listen, just take that, take that handicapped spot. Or, hey, I know there's no yellow lines there. We'll just make a spot, you know, right there by the grassy knoll. It'll be great, right? And, uh, and, and, th and then you walk in, and then you walk in, and, you know, someone comes up to you and approaches you, and, and you don't know them, and they don't know you, but, but, man, you can tell they're, like, they're really interested in getting to know you. 
And you're thinking like, oh, hey, like, I got to, like, I'm saving seats tonight. Like, people, you know, I got places to be, man. You know, I, it's great meeting you. Really in your heart, you're like, please stop talking to me. And you're close talking, your breast stinks. Can I just go to my chair now, right? And, and But vocally, you've learned how to nod your head and say nice things, you know. Oh, yeah, that's really nice. But in your heart, you're like, I hate you. Like, I don't want to talk to you. Please let me go. And, and then you walk in the room, and you're like, all right, so where is the most choice chair in this spot, Right? Like, for those of you guys that are sitting in, a, in, like, our secondary chairs over here, like, praise be to God, you know? Because those are far less comfortable than the nice, cushy, like, lean-back chairs. Okay, won't you, don't you guys agree? I mean, these chairs in this section, I, I, and maybe I'm educating you on it, they're not good, okay? <laughs> this is like the, the shaft section over here, okay? <laughs> All right? Now, listen, listen. How many of you walk in the park, drive in the parking lot, and you're like, listen, I'm going to park at Walmart just in case someone needs this spot. Like, I'm going to park in a different zip code, 6303. That's across the highway, right? Like, I'm going to huff it from Walmart because I'm probably someone's going to need this spot. And there's someone that may, right? And then you walk in, and when someone, you know, desires your time, instead of doing the Western, the American, like, I got to go, and I'm looking at my phone while you're talking, it's just eye contact. And it's in humility, like caring about what people are saying. And then you walk in here and you're like, where's the worst chair in the room? Think about if people were arguing about the worst parking spot and the worst chair. Wouldn't the world be a little bit of a different place? Seriously, you'd roll into Walmart and like a like hundred of the closest parking spots would be open. You know what I'm saying? Why did everyone park? They're believers, you know? It's like the believers Walmart. Right? Now, let's define Humility. Okay, when you're defining humility, you gotta start with C.S. Lewis. Check this out, okay? I even added a cool little graphic. Humility, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, all right? Brilliant, C.S. Lewis, super baller. This makes a lot of sense, all right? But what I think happens at this point is we just say, all right, everybody, park far away. All right, everybody, sit close. Make some changes, and then you'll be humble. But you know as well as I do, like the striving to be humble is counter-humility. Like the question of humility is so insanely difficult because it's questioning the motive. Any single one of us in this room can appear humble and servant-mindedness and be the farthest thing from it. Because then we're hard, we're like, we're doing this for me. Like this weekend when we paint the whole Jefferson School. Like you could come, A, in humility, or B, because you really want people to see you there. And it'll be very tough for people to tell the difference. So how do we grow in this? Okay, It's not by saying tonight, hey, listen, everyone, just be more humble, you idiots. Or Mark, be more humble, you moron. No, it's not doing that. It's coming at it from a different angle. It's focusing on the heart. So let's look at these helpful hints, I hope, I pray, Growing in humility as a believer, and again, like as a non-believer, this won't apply because uh, this can only be sought for in the believer. Number one, embrace the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, this, this may be seem like, like the, uh, of course, but no, 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 like we've been given the Spirit, and what the Spirit is doing in us, Scripture makes clear in Galatians 5. Beautiful. Check this out. Next slide. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know what the desires of the flesh are? To make you the king of your universe. The desires of the flesh are, I'm going to get mine. The 
desires of my flesh is I will do whatever it takes and go as far as it takes to make me happy. That's what the desires of the flesh are. You know it because you've experienced it. Some of you are deeply entrenched in it tonight. That's the desires of the flesh. But if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify those desires because the Spirit is doing something different. For the desires of the flesh, look at this, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Later in the text, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Here's like the essence of humility. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You embrace the work of the Spirit that has already been given you. Not a a spirit of fear, the scripture says, but a power of love and of sound mind. And some of you are so afraid to talk about the work of the Spirit in your life, and yet this is the quintessential peace and humility. Now secondly, number two, check this out. Growing in humility as a believer, you utilize God's word as a daily reminder of who God is and why you need him. Like, I'm going to keep shouting from a mountaintop. There's a reason why we preach verse by verse through this book, because we believe it's true. This book is inerrant. But what this book is, is a story about one hero. David's not a hero. Peter is not a hero. Noah, a decent man, not a hero. Abraham, nope. Even though he's the father of many sons, right? Many sons have father Abraham, not a hero either. There is one hero, and it's his story. And when I teach my kids on how to read the scripture, even now, what I'm teaching them is read the Bible to learn about God. Because you, the more you learn about the character of God, the more you realize how much you need him. And so if you're distant from the word, listen, it's no wonder why your motive is struggling to be humble. Because every page in this text is telling you about his character. And when you, again, when you realize how awesome his character is, you realize how much greater his ways are than yours and how desperate you are for him. It's beautiful. And so if your weekly rhythm in reading the word is just some nice pleasantries or if it's, you know, once in a while, whenever you feel like it, again, I want you to understand, it's not rocket science while you're struggling with pride. The more God's word and the spirit is revealing it, like infiltrates into your heart the more you see, oh my goodness, like this is like this is who God is. He really is the God of all comfort. I need this God. And when I need something else, then all of a sudden the needs that I have in the flesh are diminished. You guys see? It's beautiful. Number three, I hope this is encouragement. Growing in humility, you plead daily for God to guide you to walk as one who has been genuinely humbled. Now, if you're like, come on, say, do you say? Like, I, like, what, like I, don't, I don't understand what this, what this is saying. If you were here for our Colossians journey, or if you weren't, let me catch you up. What we talked about a lot in that journey is that our sins have been crucified on the cross of Christ. We quoted several times the, the story where Jesus heals the paralytic, and he tells him, pick up your mat and walk. And in essence, all believers now are told, pick up your mat and walk. Walk as one who's been healed. So your profession of Christ as Lord in your life is the beginning of humility because you're professing at your conversion, I need you. You're given then the Holy Spirit and so you already have every facet of what you need to remain humble and then I would add remain broken. And so you plead, pray in communion with God through the high priest Jesus who's making intercession that he would empower you to walk as one who has already embraced humility. It's beautiful. 
Now lastly, and certainly the most challenging for us, I believe, number four, you allow other believers to speak into your life. And this goes well for about 20 seconds, okay? Here's how it looks. So hey, uh, hey buddy, like, man, really, like, let's start an accountability group, okay? And like, we're, like, we're going to call it like something cool, like, you know, brothers for, that want to be hardcore, you know, or like, like, whatever, like you give it some cool, catchy name. And then you're like, all right, so here's what we're really going to do. We're going to call one another to task on humility and pride. That's really what I want. Brother, I want you to look in my eyes, and I want you to question my motives, and I want, to, I want you to make sure that I'm remaining humble. Oh, yeah, man, I want that same thing. Everyone hugs it out, high fives, two days later. Hey, so uh, could we get together? I just got something on my heart. Sure, and at that precise moment, you already start hating somebody, right? Why does he want to get together? So you got a problem? Like, I, I know I invited him into this, but I didn't think I'd actually have an issue, right? And then, and then you know, the brother sits down with you. Man, um, hey, I, so I saw this, I saw this, listen, I, I saw this Facebook post, and the picture, and like your, your, what you said underneath it, it caused me to think in my heart, that you were, that you were, you know, self-promoting. And, and so, man, I'm just here. And at that precise moment, the person listening, all they hear is blah, 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 right? And it's like, and then the first words out of their mouth, like before the person, oh, yeah, well, I saw your post from a couple weeks ago. You know, like I, I saw what you did. You posted, hey, man, no, I'm, I'm just trying to encourage you. Like, I just want to love you. I saw that post. And then you, you even called me and told me yesterday that the picture had 50 likes, as if that mattered. Like, I, like. Bro, this whole thing is you self-promoting. And so what happens, right, is then this contentious relationship that started out with a goal of challenging each other or loving one another now has become catty. You know, females who were invited into other females' lives and then pretty soon it turned into junior high, the junior high hallway when instead the body of Christ could have been encouraging. So you know what happens? Everyone puts up the walls And then in essence, we even become more prideful because we say no one can speak into our life. No one can challenge us. No one can call us to task. No one can say we're being prideful. So you know what? I'm going to sit on my own island, act like it's all good, and that no one can challenge me, and we'll be fine. The moment you challenge me, I'll challenge you. And in my heart, I'll hate you. I'll try to act like I'm listening, but I won't be. Does anyone see a problem with this? If we want to grow in humility, then my friends, it begins with the the gospel working in our heart through the Holy Spirit, communion with God in prayer and in word and asking the body to be the body of Christ in our life. Discipleship, accountability, the blessing in this uh, community of Lot families, and on and on and on. Now, so so Mark, like, 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 what do we do at this point in understanding humility? I want to give you this definition. I hope this sums all this up. Here's how I define gospel humility. The daily confession in word and deed that there is tremendous need in one's life with the recognition that those needs can only be met in the person of Jesus. That to me is gospel humility. I need you, God, and you're the only one that can fill that need. Do you understand what that creates in the person, the kind of humility that that creates in the confession 
And again, not just outward vocal uh, assurance, but what's happening in your heart. You know when you lay your head on the pillow every single night that you are desperate in need for his grace. Without it, you're nothing. You believe that. It's true. It's real. So what starts happening is you start seeing brokenness, humility, contriteness, the psalmist says in Psalm 51, as not a bad thing, but all of a sudden something to be embraced. Problem is, this wasn't modeled for many of you. Confessing need is like the antithesis of what you saw in your home. Your dad asked you to help, and then you walked over as a seven-year-old, and this is some of my story, and you grabbed the screwdriver, right? In the moment, like the precise second you did something wrong, he's like, no, 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 like, I got it. Like, I don't need your help. Listen, I'll just do it. You go over there and, and, and watch me, and I'll show you. And what for many of you, you guys saw growing up, was a man who didn't need any help. Or for some of you at times, a single mom who, whose father wasn't present in the home who was trying to muster up enough strength. But you know what I'm trying to embrace in all of my brokenness and sin? I want to show my family that daddy is not Superman. I want my boys to grow up holding, holding the screwdriver. I don't even know what it does, but holding the screwdriver. And allowing them to make mistakes because I've made them too. And where I don't have to portray to them, hey, guys, listen, daddy's got it all together. Listen, before tonight, uh, I was telling my son, uh, my, my six-year-old son, Dawson, I was like, man, there's, this text is, Dawson, this passage is massive tonight. Can you just pray for daddy? Like, I, there's a lot on my heart. And seriously, seriously, my six-year-old son, like, puts his hands on my shoulders and just, like, whispers a prayer in my ear. Right? Now, granted, the prayer was, God, please help daddy tonight. Have a whole lot of fun. You know, and like, you know, he, he's getting there, right? But, but what my confession was to him in that moment is, daddy needs Jesus. I wasn't trying to puff up my chest and say, hey, Dawson, guess what? Like, dad, the super pastor is going to go out and rock face tonight. I wasn't trying to communicate that. What I want my family to see every single day is a broken man when brokenness is celebrated. And brokenness isn't just a posture of sadness but it's sought after because that draws scripture says God to the brokenhearted. Uh, let me phrase it to you this way for the joy set before him he endured the cross scripture says so somehow brokenness and joy have this marrying effect but many of you grew up or even think tonight that brokenness and, and humility is far from the ad- attitude that Christians should embrace. And I'm, I'm just here to beg to differ. Now, he's just getting going, okay? Next slide. Check this out. Here's what verse 4 says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, let me first remind you something. Others have others' interests. You guys know what I'm saying? Like, I think we live that we're the only interest that matters. It's proven by even tonight. Like, so, hey, what should we do after? Should we go bowling? Should we, right? And, like, you want what you want. Or some of you guys, you know, went out for dinner or grabbed coffee here beforehand. Well, hey, let's go to Picasso's or let's go do this or let's go do that. And really what you want everyone to do is to adhere to your interests. But, again, he's trying to set the church up for oneness. 
So what does he say? Hey, listen, remember that other people have other interests, and those interests in and of themselves aren't necessarily evil or bad just because they're not yours. Imagine with me a world where this was embraced. Imagine with me a church, the body of Christ, where this was lived. Think about it, like friends talking about which restaurants they're going to go to. So let's go to Steak and Shake. No, like wherever you want to go, right? Well, I kind of want to go to McDonald's. Yeah, but okay, yeah. That, and, you know, like everyone's arguing to give up their own interests. And then, you know, it's like three hours later, like no one's decided. And it's kind of funny to think about it, but it's kind of beautiful, right? Everyone interested in serving one another. Now, last thing on this. So Mark, if we're to be interested in serving others, if we're to count others more significant than ourselves, then what about the rapist? Mark, are you saying that I should allow myself to be raped because I'm to consider others greater than myself? Mark, are you saying that because I'm in an abusive relationship and their interest is to take advantage of me, that I should allow that to happen? Mark, are you saying that even though I don't want to have sex, but, but this dude is, is saying that he loves me and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tugging on heartstrings in me? Are you, like, are you making a biblical case for giving in? Listen, no. We would never in this body of Christ ever encourage the abused woman to go back to an unrepentant man. We would journey with both sides, praying for repentance in the man. But we would never say, hey, listen, based on this text, go ahead and submit again to that yoke of slavery, which is abuse. Okay, for you females in here, you know our stance. Okay, I've had even recent conversations with dudes who I have learned are here to basically prey on women. They come here, oh, I'm a believer in God, and really what they're doing is they're looking for their, for their next opportunity. And I want you to know, females that are here, when we find out about this, we address it immediately. I've asked a litany of males to never come back here. We've journeyed with them. We've given them opportunities to repent. But when their heart has seen as, dece- as deceitful, we've said, heck no, it's not going to happen. We protect our women in here. And I'll say that about the dudes as well, though it looks a little bit different. So listen, in humility, it doesn't mean that you're a doormat. Again, humility isn't this like, it's not cowardice. And to prove his point, he brings the massive hammer in verse 5. Check this out. Unbelievable. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He like does the opposite of what you think. He sets the need and the command and the call. And now he's going to show the example of why it's possible. You already have this in Christ. This is yours. Humility. Remember like he embraced it to the fullest. And and his readers are like, well, what do you mean he embraced it? I'll tell you, Paul says, verse 6. Check this out first. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus is going to leave heaven, and though he is fully God, he decides that for a period of time in obedience to the Father... He's not going to pursue equality with God. And the Greek word here is more like seizing it like robbery. Instead, he's going to submit in obedience to the Father and give up some things. In the example of humility, some of those things better explained in verse 7. Check this out, beautiful. But he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now the word form in verse 6 and the word form in verse 7 are the same Greek word, and they both implied like outward, like inward. So in other words, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But he empties himself as he comes to this earth, incarnates, and think about what he empties himself of. I mean, think about what he has. Again, he's fully God. He gives up, like, the heavenlies. He gives up, listen, even this, like, untarnished relationship with Father God. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That sounds like an, an errant doctrine. Do you guys know what happens on the cross? As Jesus takes on the sin of the world, you know what happens in that moment in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The, the doctrinal term is propitiation. All of a sudden, the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of the world are born on the shoulders of Christ. And God can have nothing to do with it because he can have nothing to do with sin. Scripture makes clear this contentious moment because Jesus is wrestling with it in his heart in the garden. But... He does the will of his father. He empties himself. He releases himself. And this is the picture of humility for you and I. It's an emptying of our desires, of our plans, of our visions, of our dreams, of our thoughts, of our hopes. It's giving those over. So in humility, we can submit to the one who's got the whole world in his hands. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He becomes just like us so that we can become just like him. So he gets hungry. He gets tired. Like he, he has to drink. He becomes fully God and fully man, so Hebrews says he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Okay, verse 8 adds this, beautiful. And being found in, in, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, for you and I, our humility has limits. When it's genuine, it is often met with barriers. Um, you'll do and say things like, all right, listen, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up my time as long as. I'm going to be hospitable. As long as it doesn't do this, God, I'll serve you and I'll go anywhere as long as it's within St. Charles County. Hey, God, listen, I'll break up with her as long as you have someone like even better waiting a couple days later. God, I'll follow you wherever you want, but you better hook me up. Right. And on and on and on. Our humility has bounds. What do you see in Christ? All the way to death. He goes all the way. His humility doesn't stop. He sees it through. Why? It's in obedience to the Father. Does he wrestle? Yes. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's bleeding, the scripture says, blood. And he says, if there's any other way. But then he submits. Your will be done. And then Paul, very shrewdly, at the end of verse 8, adds, even death on a what? On a cross. It was uh, initiated by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, 
And for those of you that have ever seen the Passion of the Christ or have some kind of image of the death on the cross in your mind, you know how heinous it was. It was humiliating in every sense because it prolonged death. Ultimately, most folks on the cross would die because of suffocation. As fluids started filling the lungs, uh, they were left able enough to be able to push themselves up to breathe while bleeding out from the scourging on their back, or in Jesus' case, blood dripped down his face from the crown of thorns that had been shoved into his skull. It was a humiliating death. He doesn't just come down and die. He dies on a wretched tree. That back in Deuteronomy, the scripture says that anyone who dies on a tree is cursed. Don't you think at some point Jesus was like, I created these people and they're spitting in my face. I'm done. Like, I love these people. I healed this, I healed this leper and he turned his back on me. I'm, I'm tired of these people. And the scripture makes clear in Romans that though we were all sinners, like knowing our sin, he already like foresee you and I sin, he still died. So all of those things, right, are being processed by the God-man Jesus. If that's you and I, seriously, in the face of, 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 of the spit in the face, when we could turn our back, when we had the power to like all of a sudden engulf everyone around us with fire, like wouldn't you be tempted to do so? Oh, I'll show all these punks right now. You know, put me up on a cross? Okay, lightning bolt on the face. She gone and you gone too, right? Like he starts like taking out people, right? But he doesn't. Have you ever wondered... Um, what differentiates our faith from the other faiths? If you've ever studied Mormonism, if you've ever studied uh, Buddha as a person, if you've ever looked at some of the New Age principles, I want you to understand how counterintuitive and different the gospel is from all of that. This is your king in humility, to death, even on a cross. Obedience is always met with blessing. Hear that, please. Obedience is always met with blessing. Now, the blessing, you have to understand, won't come in the way sometimes that you're expecting. This is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that we fight so strongly here. They think, I obey, and then God hooks me up. The blessing is, in my obedience, I know Jesus, which is a blessing in and of itself. Christ's obedience is met with a blessing in verse 9. Check this out. So awesome. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him. Hey, let me remind you of the, of the story, the crown of thorns and the blood and everything that was heinous about the cross I know it's not Easter tonight, but you guys know what happens, right? Like a few days later, our king walks out the grave, conquers death. Death no longer has a sting, and then he ascends. He shows himself to his boys. He commissions them and sends them out, and then he ascends. Look at this. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him what? The name that is above every name. I say it all the time here. That's why you never hear people saying, ah, Joseph Smith, you know? Ah, Buddha. You know, you don't hear that. 
Even when people take the Lord's name in vain, they say Jesus Christ. Why? It has power. You don't hear people quoting other gods because even in the name it lacks power. You start saying Jesus Christ, it comes with power. He gave him a name that is above every name so that, you have to see this tonight, at the name of Jesus, no other name. At the name reign, uh, ruling, a kingship of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let me make sure you understand what's happening. There will be a day when every single knee will bow in humility to the kingship of Christ. First in heaven, all the souls that are the spirits that are uh, saints of old that are awaiting the resurrection bodies and all the angels that haven't, been, uh, that haven't left heaven to the confines of hell, they will bend the knee. And then who else? Everyone on earth. When Christ returns, the scripture says, with a, uh, with a robe dipped in blood, sword coming out of his mouth to take the church home, every single, every single believer and not knee will bow and, and also under the earth. Well, well, that's like under the earth. Like how in the world is, no, 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 you have to understand. Do you guys know that when Jesus was on the earth, the demons asked Jesus, is now our time? Like, they, they know the destruction is coming. And the scripture says that even the demons believe and shudder. And there will be a time where demonic activity, listen to this, this is the awesomeness of the kingship of Christ, will bow the knee, and under the earth will bow the knee to King Jesus. Every single person will be humbled at the thought of Christ, now or later. Some of you have to wrestle with that reality. It's going to happen. It's just a question of if it's going to happen before he returns, meaning that the period of grace is still open. Because make no mistake, just because in that moment the demons will submit and they will bend their knee to the Lord Jesus, they will not be rewarded for their submission. They will see the truth and they will spend forever separated from God. But you and I... He hasn't come back yet, and you're still alive. You're still sitting here. That means the period of grace is still open. That means you don't have to wait until that day to bend the knee in humility. That means you can do that tonight. And finally, in verse 11, he ends with this. It's not just that every knee will bow. He also says, and every tongue will confess. So I I want you to understand this. Like, when rulers would come in, uh, and we've even seen this recently with ISIS and stuff like this, this forced into submission, bending the knee. It's not just a bending of the knee. It's every tongue will confess. And it's not in deceitful ways. It's not like lying. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? You have to see this tonight, my friends. Is Lord. Everyone's going to confess he's Lord. Not a teacher, not a nice prophet, not a good healer, not a reason to sing nice songs. The whole world, on earth, in heaven, under the earth, everyone is going to bend the knee. Everyone is going to confess that he is Lord. Now or then, that will be every single person in this room's profession. As for me and my house, no rocks are going to cry out on my behalf. 
Jesus in the triumphant entry, he like he he's told by some of the Pharisees, hey, shut your boys up, they're worshiping. And Jesus says, even if they shut up, the rocks are gonna cry out. Well, that's for me and my house, maybe you're with me. Like, I don't want no rock to cry out. I have reason tonight to celebrate. And the reason for the celebration, Paul ends verse 11 with, to the glory of God the Father. There's only one piece of glory that's deserved, and that's in the Lord's hands. So, what does this mean for you and I? Let me show you. Two very important texts. James 4 says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The same experience we just saw in Christ is your promise too. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Confess your need for him and know that your need can only be met by him. That's what true brokenness is. Is it just sorrow? No, it's also joy. It's also the joy of knowing in these profound moments that though there are so many options out there to fulfill your need, you have the hope of knowing there is only one fulfillment. And like that breaks me. That slices me open with joy, with encouragement, and yes, even at times brought to tears. And then 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In the same way that he exalted Christ, his son, we because of Jesus will be exalted. But I want to end by showing you this. You know how this verse ends? Add this here. Check this out. Crazy in 1 Peter 5. Casting all your anxieties on, on him because he cares for you. We often separate those two verses. Humble yourselves by taking your need to him. Knowing that he's the only one that can hear it, that can resolve it. And that is the source of all comfort and love. Now, I think for many of us, like we've been confused about how this works or how this looks. Uh, John's gospel records Jesus with his disciples taking off his outer robe. And Jesus, literally the king of the universe, gets on his knees. Listen to this. And he starts washing the feet of his disciples. The king. How counterintuitive is that? He models for us what life after him will look like. And the world is longing for you and I to embrace it. And then, my friends, he takes some bread. And he says these profound things as he breaks it. This is my body. What's the word? Come on. Broken for you. Is brokenness bad? If brokenness is bad, then you and I don't have redemption. The body of Christ breaks. There's blood open. And Jesus says, take this and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then in one of the most profound moments in all of Scripture, he holds up the cup. Knowing what was coming, knowing the real pain he would experience, many believe because he was God that there was no pain on the cross. He was fully God and fully man. 
experiencing every lashing, experiencing every poke in his side, every thorn in his skull. He holds up the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant which will be poured out for you. He says, take and drink in remembrance of me. And from that night, the disciples are scared. Jesus is arrested. They think it's all over. Many of them run. But something reunites them. Something brings them back. It's that the broken body and the shed blood of Christ wasn't the end. His brokenness is just a piece of the story. So that tonight, every single one of us could not take this for granted one more day. But we could see the beauty of the broken and shed blood of Christ and that you and I tonight could celebrate it could break in light of it, could say, I'm tired of my lethargic ways. God, help me tonight. Break my heart tonight, God. God, give me a joy unlike I've never experienced. Bring me to this place of humility. God, do that tonight. That can be yours. So this meal is here for believers. And then off on both sides, we have benches. An opportunity for you to bend the knee tonight. Underneath those benches are index cards and pens. And I feel like some of you, not all of you, but some of you need to articulate to the Lord some of the things that you're feeling. Need to articulate prayers maybe that you've been holding back for years. And maybe tonight will be the first time in your whole life that you've ever bent the knee in the face of Christ. Church, tonight, my friends, let's respond to our Lord.